Well, good morning. If you'd open your Bibles to Psalm 137. Psalm 137. Some of you might be thinking, really, that psalm? Yes, really. The psalmist writes by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill, let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Let's pray. Father, we need help with this one. Would you open your word up to us and open us up to your word that we might behold the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. So by way of introduction to this psalm, I would say that the last decade have seen the rise of a couple words that I really had never heard before deconversion, exvangelical, and the words describe the rejection of the faith by those who formerly identified as Christians. There are a variety of reasons that are given, but usually they have something to do with the problem of evil or difficult passages that seem unworthy of God and his people, like the so-called Canaanite genocide texts, or anything in the Bible that prescribes a sexual ethic that runs contrary to the sexual ethics of our culture right now. And these questions revolve not so much around whether God exists or not, but whether the God of the Bible is good. And one of the most shocking passages in all the Bible, well, we just read it, Psalm 137. And strangely, and maybe you felt this as we were reading it, that the psalm begins with perhaps the most beautiful line in all of literature. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. And then it concludes with one of the most horrifying. Atheists gloat over this psalm. Christians are uneasy with it. Prayer books, hymn books, and worship books all delete that last line. Eugene Peterson calls the removal of that line a psalmectomy. And no doubt that that line, this psalm, is shocking but I wonder if we are shocked by the right thing. After all, evil is shocking, and so is judgment. So if you're here this morning, you're, maybe you're listening, and, 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 and you are not 
yet a Christian. Maybe you've heard this passage or passages like it in the Bible, and, and you think, ah, this is a strike against Christianity. I knew it. Well, listen for the next 30 or 40 minutes or so and consider. Have you wondered what a world with no justice would look like? And as we work through this psalm, think about the implications of human evil. Do you recognize evil in others? Do you recognize evil in yourself? Do you really want to live in a world where the righteous are not vindicated and where evil is not punished? If you're a Christian, Perhaps some of you are deeply troubled by this psalm, and, and maybe you're starting to wonder if the critics and deconstructors might have a point. Well, this is why I'm preaching it today. To you, listen as I explain what is going on. This is a model of lament. And from lament at the beginning to resolve in the middle, to surrendering justice into the hands of the Father. That's what's described here. Lament is the language of grief. And humans cry when tragedy comes, but Christians are supposed to lament. Lament is what we do when our hope is intermingled with grief, or maybe better, when our grief is intermingled with hope. The response of living in this world with open eyes, but eyes of faith as well. Lament is the language of faith. Christians, more than anybody, should know that despite what Emmett in the Lego movie sings, everything is not awesome. <laughs> and then for, for, for some of us, you need to hear the word of God this morning because this psalm in a very real way reflects what you are going through right now and what you are feeling right now. And, and maybe you're a little ashamed or you wonder whether your desire for justice is actually Christ-like. Well, this psalm is for you. So let's, let's talk about it. Some background. We don't know exactly when the psalm was written, but the inferred author, the, the author of it, would be writing from Babylon in probably the 580s BC, plus or minus five or 10 years. The kingdom of Judah had been overrun by Babylon. That was the great dynasty of the era. The conquest of Jerusalem was long and bloody, and it was absolutely horrific. The details of the protracted siege are provided by both Babylonian history and in the Jewish scriptures, and they largely agree. It was a merciless bloodbath. There were actually two different sieges, each of which took multiple years. The result was starvation and deprivation and disease. The inhabitants of Jerusalem, they resorted to crime and murder and even cannibalism, some parents even eating their own children to bring relief. That's in Babylonian history, and it's in the Jewish scriptures. When Jerusalem finally fell, the Babylonians were merciless, killing, raping, pillaging their way through the city. They destroyed the city walls, and worst of all, 
they raised the temple to the ground. Remember that the temple was the center of Israelite life and worship. It was the place from which God's presence was mediated. How important was the temple to the Jewish people? Well, remember that the planning and the building and the, de- the dedication of the temple occupies the author of First and Second Chronicles from First Chronicles 13 all the way through Second Chronicles 7, a stunning 24 chapters in all. It was the site of the pilgrim feasts where the faithful worship, and now it was gone, all gone. I mean, even in exile, they had been instructed by King Solomon, builder of the temple, to pray towards the temple, and God would hear their prayers and restore them to the land. But in our psalm, the Israelites had been exiled, and there was no longer any temple in whose direction they could pray. The march of the exiles from Jerusalem to Babylon was over 900 miles long and took about four months to complete. Y'all heard of the Bataan Death March in World War II? Do you know how long that was? 65 miles. This was 900. 900 miles. Trudging due north, then southeast along the Euphrates River to Babylon, all the while nursing the wounds of war and the PTSD of the horrific atrocities that they had seen and they had felt, there were plenty of opportunities to reflect on their own plight. And the result? Psalm 137. So let's look at it. Stanza by stanza. Stanza number one, this is the lament. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. From there, our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. In this song of lament, our attention is drawn immediately to the setting. The writer is by the waters of Babylon. And perhaps if the line ended there, we would think of an idyllic place. Maybe our minds would wander to the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the wonders of the ancient world. But our minds can't travel to the hanging gardens because of the next line. There we sat down and wept. You can hear, you can feel the sharp contrast. I'm, and whenever I read this, I'm reminded of, of the day that, that my, my father died. He, we were down in Coos Bay, and it was a beautiful day on the South Coast. And I am driving back from the hospital, and I am weeping as I'm driving. And I'm seeing all these people driving the other direction towards the coast. Many of them are probably on their way to a fun day at the beach, and my world is rocked right now. And I remember thinking how unfair this was. Why are you going to the coast? Don't you feel my pain? Don't you feel that? It felt unjust. This is what the exiles are feeling. They can't get over where they are. Notice the repetition of the word there. There we sat down and wept. There we hung up our lyres. There our captors required of a song. Their exile had driven a spike deep into their hearts and you can feel the pain and the anguish of every line. The blood of their wounds is going to wash over the pages of the Psalter. And what makes matters worse is when they remember 
whence they came, from where they came. Jerusalem, the holy city of God. And so every time they looked at the Babylonian landscape, this strange land, they surveyed the city skyline with its daunting ziggurats and heard an unfamiliar speech. They were reminded of their exile and hence their failure, their sin, and their just punishment. Another word that's repeated in this song that gives us great insight is the word remember. We find it in the first verse, and then we find it twice in the last stanza. To remember in the Bible is to do more than just call to mind. It's to recall and then to act in light of that. To remember in the Bible is, is a call to action. But for the Israelites, the only action that they can perform when they remember is to weep. They remember Zion, the nickname for Jerusalem, the the capital city of the great king. When you would go up to Jerusalem, you would very literally go up Mount Zion. So it became like a shorthand designation for Jerusalem and the temple place. Typically to remember Zion then is to remember the glory of the Lord and of Israel. It would, it would swell the chest of any Israelite with pride. It would be to anticipate a great pilgrim feast, a celebration of Israel's God. But such wonderful action is now absolutely impossible, so all they can do is lament. Gresham Bible. <laughs> lament is part of the language of faith. We might ask, How are the complaints of the exiled Israelites to God simultaneously God's word to us? These guys are just griping. How how is that God's word to me? Well, lament is to be owned by the faithful Christian in his or her prayers. To lament is not to look at the brokenness of the world and to despair, where your eyes are just fixed on this day, it's to recognize the brokenness of the world this day in hope of a that day, later, when God makes everything right. This day, broken. That day, God makes everything right. And what we do this day is we lament over it, but there's a hope and anticipation because we live in anticipation of that great day. And then we think about who our Lord is. Jesus Christ is described as a man of sorrows. Jesus was acquainted with grief, very much acquainted with grief. He better than anyone knows what it is to be a victim. And you have a sympathetic priest in Christ Jesus. So we take our troubles to him. Our master's ear is tuned to hear our voice your Savior's ear is tuned to hear your voice. No grief is too large. No grief is too small to share with Jesus. But how are we to do that? Look at the second stanza. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Now, in the first stanza, a request was made, the last verse of the first stanza, sing us a song of Zion, the captors said. But this is cruel. 
It's just adding insult to injury. They're being asked to perform for their captors. And, and why not? I mean, the Jews were renowned for their songs, particularly the songs of Zion. They are upbeat and fun and happy. These were the songs of praise and anticipation that were best sung on pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, rejoicing in the king and, and the kingdom of God. And the lyres were typically an instrument of, of praise and joy. But to sing these songs would have been improper. It would have been illegitimate. It would have been sacrilegious. It almost would have been blasphemous. The songs of Zion express wonder at the city's defenses and the city's deliverances. And now that's all gone. And so the Babylonian request is heard rightly as a cruel taunt. It's not an innocent request. Hey, we hear you're very talented. Share with us your talent. No. Those making the request are identified, our captors, our tormentors. Sing us one of the songs of Zion, you smitten slaves. Entertain us, our captured ones, with your national songs. Amuse us. Here in the second stanza, we discovered what's wrong with the request. The songs of Zion are, in fact, the Lord's songs. That's what we're told. Profound love for Zion, for Jerusalem, for the land of Israel is not separate from their love of God. They all go together. The two are intertwined because it is in Jerusalem that the temple was located. Now, you can sing the Lord's songs anywhere. God's omnipresent. He'll hear you. The issue is not whether God would hear the songs. Remember, though, that in the economy of the ancient Near East, the defeat of one nation by another determined whose God was greater. To the Babylonians, to hear a song of praise to the Lord would have been quaint and silly. Listen to this vanquished people. Celebrate how great their defeated and puny God is. There is no way that a faithful Israelite could assent to that request. Not like that. It would be to make a mockery of the Lord. Instead, the Israelites vow to never forget. Never forget Jerusalem, the city of the king. And it's here that we see the first bit of hope that's breaking in. And it's instructional for us. You see, there is more to faithful lament than just vocalizing heartbreak. There's also some resolve. They commit themselves to holding Jerusalem above their greatest joy. They will not forget. Forgetting is the opposite, of course, of remembering. To forget is to fail to call to mind and therefore fail to act. To forget then is to, uh, to, to <laughs> subjugate, your, or it would have been to subjugate themselves in that moment. To amuse the Babylonians with song would be to forget who they were and whose they were. So they vow never to forget, to always remember under pain of curse. They bring a curse upon themselves. If I ever sing this song, may I never sing again. If I ever play one of these songs for them, may my right hand lose all of its skill. And I think we could learn something from the Israelites here as well. Their lament does not end in complaint. It begins there for sure. Lament, faithful lament, begins with pouring out your frustrations to the Lord. And the exiles had lots of reasons to complain. The generation depicted here would never return to the land of Israel. Most 
would never see the temple again. Most would never sing the Lord's praises on Mount Zion again, at least not in this life. More importantly, for our purposes, they would not ever see justice. They would not be vindicated, at least not in this lifetime. Most would live the remainder of their days effectively prisoners in a foreign land. There would be no happily ever ending to their story. But this psalm teaches us that such does not have to be the last word. Instead, the people of God would speak the last word. They resolved to be faithful and exalt the city of God even if they never saw it again. And they had reason to have that resolve because God had made promises to them. God had promised that even after the exile, he would restore the fortunes of Israel. It's codified in the Mosaic Covenant. We're going to look at it in a few weeks when we finish Deuteronomy. Worship in Jerusalem would someday once again take place. We should recall the promises of God as well. I don't know what has happened to you in the last few weeks or the last few months, what kind of bad news you've received or what kind of of trouble you are going through. I don't know how deep the claws of this cursed world have dug into you. I know that some in the congregation have experienced the death of a family member. Some have received difficult diagnoses. No doubt many of you have good reason to lament, and you should. It is important that you voice your frustration and hurt to the Lord. But before you stop, remember the good promises of God. And Christian, you have good promises. In fact, you have better promises than Israel ever had. Consider Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. And sometimes it feels like all we have are the words of a promise. But sometimes also it helps to vocalize our statements of resolve. Now it might seem like no one's listening, that the world is louder and stronger and it doesn't care about your struggles. It doesn't care about your disappointments or your heartbreak, your faith. But in our discussion of the first stanza, I said that there is one whose ear is tuned to hear your voice. Jesus Christ, our great high priest, hears you and he has spoken good promises to you. So is your ear tuned to his voice. Let's rehearse some of those promises. Jesus promises to never leave you or to forsake you. He promises to be your help in temptation. He promises to guard and keep you until the day of salvation. Jesus promises to finish his work in you until his day, the day of Jesus Christ. We go on and on and on. Remember his promises. Preach them to yourself and then listen to yourself as you are talking to yourself. Most of the time I would say, don't listen to yourself, speak to yourself. But when you're speaking truth to yourself, that's when you listen to yourself. That's when you listen. So now we get to stanza three. Here we go. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. 
Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Okay. (laughs) This is what we call an imprecatory psalm. An imprecatory psalm. What is an imprecatory psalm? It's a psalm in which there are imprecations. What is an imprecation? A curse. It's a curse. An imprecatory psalm is characterized by curses. It's where the psalmist asks the Lord to curse the enemies of the one who is praying. Okay, so how do we make sense of this? The word remember is used again here, but this time it comes in the midst of a request. The Israelites want God to remember what they have just gone through. They want God to remember the atrocities committed against them and the hubris of those who committed those atrocities. The exiles do not want God just to make sure that there is a record deposited into God's memory of what occurred. They want God to avenge them. And they give some details. The Edomites cheered on the Babylonians and did whatever they could to disgrace Judah and keep them from escaping. You can read about that in Ezekiel 25 and 35. The Edomites are there. It's like they have like a front row seat to watch the destruction and they are applauding the horror of what Babylon is doing. Knowing that when Babylon takes away the exiles, the Edomites can just slide right in and occupy the vacuum that's been left behind. They were rooting for the destruction of the foundations of Lord's rule on earth and the Israelites want God to remember this and to avenge them against the Edomites. Then the exile's attention, it turns to Babylon. They speak of daughter Babylon. This is probably a reference to the capital city in contrast to Jerusalem. And so that last line, how do we make sense of this? Can, can a Christian pray something like this or sing something like this and not be in sin? The world looks at this psalm, especially the last line, and mocks Christians. You guys are just hypocrites. You're just as spiteful and bitter as anyone else. What happened to turn the other cheek? What about love your enemies? So I want to give us a few things to think about here that will help with this psalm. Number one, we dare not pit the Old Testament against the New Testament as though they are in conflict. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. So whatever they were doing back there, that's sub-Christian. Don't pit the New Testament against the Old Testament. On the one hand, we find commands to love your enemies all through the Old Testament. The love of God and love of neighbor is dominant in the last book that we went through and are still going to finish, the book of Deuteronomy. Consider this from from Leviticus, for example. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Do not take vengeance, God says. On the other hand, the apostles of the New Testament also curse the enemies of the gospel. We saw that in the book of Galatians when we went through it. Remember Paul and the troublers of, of the Galatian Christians? 1 Corinthians chapter 16, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. We're going to come back to that in a moment. So that's the first thing. Don't pit the Old Testament against the New Testament in our understanding of this. Second, remember this, what we just read. It is poetry. It's poetry. Now that doesn't mean it's false. 
It is true. It is the inspired word of God, and it is important. It is very emotional. And I'm not saying that as an excuse, like, but it's very emotional. No, it's emotional. That's an explanation for what's going on here. It is a literary genre that is intentionally picked to convey and evoke emotion. Further, poetry is full of metaphor and hyperbole. We expect exaggeration because often exaggeration is the go-to for complaint. Parents, you know this, right? Your children, three hours after breakfast, probably right now, lunch delayed because this preacher won't finish, right? Are met with, I'm starving. And I suppose you could take that literally, starving, really? You're the only human in all of creation whose caloric stores don't exceed four hours? You're not starving, that's ridiculous. But they're complaining, so they're hyperbolic. Anytime we read poetry, including the poetry of the Bible, we have to be ready for figures of speech and hyperbole, intentional exaggeration to make a point. So what's the point? The Israelites are hurting. They are hurting. They've been treated cruelly, more cruelly than we have categories for here in the United States. Every atrocity of war was committed against the Israelites. They have been stripped of all human rights and dignity, and I think they're asking the Lord to see them, remember them, and make the Babylonians feel like they are feeling right now. Number three, following that, the Israelites were only asking God to be faithful to promises that he had made to them. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant, the most fundamental and basic covenant in the Bible. God says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Abrahamic covenant is an eternal covenant, and nothing that happened to Israel or that Israel did canceled out that covenant. But it's more than just the Abrahamic covenant where God says, what people do to you, I will do to them, good or bad. Over 700 years before the Babylonian exile, just before he died, Moses taught the Israelites a song so that they might remember the Mosaic covenant and follow it. Note again that remembering calls people to action. Towards the end of the song, we read in Deuteronomy 33, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Part of the Mosaic covenant is the promise that God will avenge his covenant people, Israel. Then the prophets, even during the exile, perhaps reflecting on that promise, they prophesied the same sort of thing. Both Jeremiah and Ezekiel they prophesied judgment and repayment upon Babylon for what they had done to Israel. So in a very real sense, Psalm 137, the exiles are just asking God to do what he had promised that he would do for Israel. Number four thing to think of, vengeance belongs to the Lord. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. It is important to remember that in this psalm, the Israelites are not taking matters into their own hands. They're asking God to take vengeance for them. And why shouldn't they? 
I mean, the right to judge and the prerogative to punish is something that the Lord claims for himself. And he does it over and over again in both the Old and the New Testaments. Vengeance is mine and recompense, Deuteronomy 32. Paul repeats that in his letter to the Romans. Romans 12, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Furthermore, God is praised throughout both the Old and New Testaments for being a God who judges, who takes vengeance, not on innocence, but upon those who deserve judgment. Is this just an Old Testament thing where the people of God cry out for vengeance? No, it's a New Testament, New Covenant thing as well. Consider Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. When he, this angel, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. That's Revelation chapter six, New Testament, talking about the end of things. I would submit to you that there is no difference at all between Psalm 137 verse nine and what we just read in Revelation six. No difference at all. In both cases, the people of God are asking the Lord to avenge them for atrocities committed against them. True, one of them talks about babies, the other does not. But much of that, if not all, I think is due to genre difference. Poetry, which we said is raw and emotional. The other is part of the apocalyptic literature, which is highly symbolic, but more detached and therefore far less emotional. Does that make sense? Now we have to be clear also, God does not get his jollies crushing people. The Bible's very clear about that. Those people who fall under God's just judgment are still image bearers, prompting the Lord to declare in Ezekiel, (laughs) a Babylonian exile himself who prophesied judgment against Babylon, he says, the Lord says through him, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. So why does God judge if he doesn't get his jollies from it? Because, number five, there is evil in this world, true evil. I think sometimes we forget the depths of human evil, and I'm grateful that I live in a place where I can kind of forget about it, right? It's, that's good. But consider just the genocides, and I mean that in the literal sense, where one people group was aimed at wiping out another people group of just the last hundred years, Consider what happened just a hundred days ago in Israel, whether in Armenia, the Jewish Holocaust, Cambodia, Rwanda, Bosnia, Darfur, tens of millions of men, women, children have lost their lives in genocide and mass atrocities. Millions have been tortured, raped, or forced from their homes. Think about the abuse of women and children. Now we're getting closer to home. Or sex trafficking or elder abuse, whether motivated by greed or hate or who knows what lurks in the dark hearts of humans. The list could go on and on and on. 
throughout the history of the world and right now throughout the world, horrific evil has and is taking place. And the victims of that, they don't struggle with the idea of judgment. I I say this often when I'm talking about the doctrine of hell. The doctrine of hell does not create problems for the apostles. It solves them. Judgment is the solution to evil. Now, maybe the hipster atheist millennial who thinks his biggest problem is that his latte isn't warm enough, he's got this strange perspective to criticize judgment. But most real victims, they don't have that perspective at all. They're not troubled by judgment. They're encouraged by it. They need it. It's hopeful. You can't have justice without judgment. God cannot be just unless he judges. He cannot equip the guilty. It is not in his nature to acquit the guilty. He must judge. And I think there's something in us that understands that. Consider like the Nuremberg war crime trials following World War II or the the trial of Saddam Hussein. The whole world wanted in on that. No nation wanted left out because each nation felt a stake in the crimes against humanity, even if not every, every one of those nations was personally affected. Now, you might protest that genocide ought not to be judged by genocide, and, and, and I, I agree. And here we turn to the word of God where he promises to judge everyone according to their own sin. The God of the whole earth will do what is right. But part of doing what's right is judgment. And here we must take the biblical perspective on this. As I said earlier, there is no justice without judgment, and judgment is a crucial part of the work of God. And the people of God are to take hope in this. There will be vindication for the people of God. Evil will be judged. In the book of Revelation, God is praised throughout the book for being creator, savior, and judge. Listen in Revelation 18 and then 19, how judgment falls on Babylon and then how God is praised for bringing that judgment. Then a mighty angel took a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And in the book of Revelation, of course, Babylon stands not just for that one particular part uh, in, you know, in, in Iraq, but like for all the people of the world who are arrayed against God. Chapter 19, after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belongs to our God for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Here Babylon is finally judged and evil finally judged and it occasions great praise. Number six, and here I am actually ending on six. I should have come up with one more, but for the people of God, the promise is vindication. For others, that promise means judgment. And that's hard. Here's the thing. God would rather justly forgive than to justly punish. And the strongest proof of that is the cross of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need to know 
that judgment is coming. You also need to know this. For you, it could be that judgment has already come if you will turn to the gospel and embrace the judgment on Jesus in your place. The Bible promises that if you believe that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from this very judgment we're talking about. You can enter the people of God, not just as a distant citizen, but as an adopted child with all the rights and all the privileges and hope for judgment can be precisely that. You can be vindicated through the cross of Jesus Christ. So, should we pray imprecatory prayers? How are we supposed to pray in light of Psalm 137? Should we pray imprecatory prayers? I have two answers. The first one is yes. This is the word of God. There is evil in this world and it is hateful to God. So we should pray for justice. The prayer for divine judgment is a prayer that God's justice, his ways, his nature will be carried out in the judgment of sin. And God is always glorified through justice. Pray that God would rescue. Pray that God would vindicate his people. Pray that God would judge evil. Should we pray imprecatory prayers as a Christian? First answer, yes. Second answer, yes, but. Yes, but when I pray today for God's vengeance, I am mindful of the fact that God's judgment on sin has already taken place at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we remember that we are to love our enemies and pray for our enemies. That should be, it's, it's hard to do, but it should be easy if we just consider, well, at one point I was one of those enemies. <laughs> I was one of them. Remember that while we were once sinners, Christ died for us. Remember that we were just like our enemies. Every Christian was at one time a rebel, or to use the parable, the wheat and the tares, every bit of wheat was at one point a tare until God made it wheat, if that makes sense. Remember that the reason that God does not initiate judgment right now is due to mercy. It's due to mercy. The parable of the wheat and the tares tells us that. Go read it later. I'm, i got to finish here. The prescribed way, the best way that we pray an imprecatory prayer now as a Christian is to eagerly anticipate and pray for the return of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote, to Timothy, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to also, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Christian, do you yearn for the return of Jesus? When you yearn for the return of Jesus, you are yearning for justice. The Bible ends with this great promise. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon, Jesus says. Amen. John writes, come Lord Jesus. Christian, know this. When we pray for the Lord's return, we are praying for justice and we are praying for judgment. Because Jesus promised that when he returned, it would be to judge. The most powerful imprecatory prayer that we can pray is, 
Come, Lord Jesus, come soon. And so we keep these truths, though, in tension, don't we? The Christian simultaneously prays, Have mercy, Lord Jesus. Even as we pray, Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, all of your word is inspired and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, even perhaps especially Psalm 137. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear your word. Father, may may we trust in your justice. May we trust in your timing, in your compassion, in your mercy. May we be full of mercy, even as we pray that you would have mercy. And yet, may we also yearn for the return of your Son to make everything right, to vindicate the righteous, and to judge the wicked. Give us hearts that desire both, because both are true of your Son. It's in his name that we pray. It's for his sake that we pray and for ours. Amen.